I want to turn our focus, though, in this last message that I bring to what may well be the pinnacle of God's great and gracious gifts to us as believers that come from the cross of Jesus and all that he achieved through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. It has to do with who you, true believer, really are. You are a son of God. Second only to knowing who God is, is knowing who you are in him by his grace. This simple fact about us imparts to us both a status and an eternal identity that is at once both legal and more wonderfully familial and paternal. We are going to take a rapid journey through a number of New Testament texts. Let me pray quickly. Our Lord, your glory, your goodness, your grace, your mercy are magnified in the gift that we are going to talk about today. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified and we, your people, would be edified. Through Christ, amen. If being a son of God sounds a little bit old hat or humdrum to you, then maybe it will be helpful to catch up on who we were before Christ bought us. I should say before uh, that a few weeks ago, I, in our last message to the Koinonia class, I introduced this topic of adoption to sonship. To those of you in that class, you don't need to leave. This is not the same message. (laughs) I will only touch upon a few things that I brought up last time, but I told you then there was so much more to say about this wonder of wonders of blessing to us. Even today, I will only be able to add to but not exhaust what the scriptures teach about adoption to sonship. Just who were we before Jesus purchased us through his blood on the cross? I need to say that who we were then, we weren't aware of. We did not realize. But now, as true believers, we should know that back then, we were by nature children of wrath. Because We were sons of disobedience, being sons and slaves of our father, the devil, being strangers and foreigners to God. These are things that Jesus and Paul both teach in the New Testament. And Paul in Romans 5 adds four more facts about our previous lives. He says we were helpless, ungodly, we were sinners, and we were enemies. Of God. Now, let me ask you this. Suppose that you knew someone who displayed all these characteristics towards you, and then amazingly, you and that person made amends. Would you suddenly be desiring to bring that person into your family and make that person an heir of all you have? Hardly. Unthinkable. It's one thing to make amends It's quite another to adopt and give all the rights as heirs to a person. 
Well, it has been rightly said by no less than Jesus himself, things that are impossible with people are possible with God, Luke 18, 27. In fact, through the cross of Christ and faith in him, God has made it more than possible. He has made it actual, eternal, inexplicably wonderful as our current reality now in Christ. Praise be to the Lord. You and I were like the prodigal son in the parable of Jesus when he returned home to his father, and all that he could say is, Father, I have sinned, and I am not worthy to be called your son. Indeed, unworthy is what we were. But God's grace flows to just those who come to know that this is true of them. No human ever born could ever have a right in himself or herself to become adopted into the eternal sonship of the Heavenly Father. If it could be so, then all the world would have the right to inheritance. But inheritance is first, the Son of God himself. Secondly, it is the Son's to impart. And thirdly, it can only be had through faith in him. So you see, adoptive sonship is not by nature, but by absolute grace. With others, I consider this sonship to be the pinnacle of God's grace to us in Christ. Think of any of the aspects of the blessings achieved for us at the cross, and while everyone is great beyond measure, none of them approaches what sonship grants us, but each one is preparatory. Indeed, God has, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ, all of which are breathtaking in their scope. Yet only the zenith of intimacy with God is achieved through adoption to sonship. Consider the following about what has been achieved at the cross. We have been chosen. Yes, but a person can be chosen to say, be on my team and not be brought into my family as an heir of all. We have been justified. Hallelujah. And before the judge, I would stand acquitted, but that does not make me a part of his family forever as an heir. We have been propitiated. Yes, but having, the, but having God's just wrath borne by our Lord and removed from us, did not impart to us the Father's love and delight that comes along with adoption. We have been reconciled, we are taught. Yes, but having the enmity resolved between us does not mean that I have the rights of a son in the family, of my former enemy. We have been redeemed out of the slavery of Satan, to become slaves of God and Christ, as the New Testament teaches. But to have a new master is not the same as having him as our father. Luke 12, 4 and John 15, 14 tell us that we have been made God's friends. Again, imagine making friends with a former enemy and then making him your heir. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Oh, wonder of wonders, the unfathomable gift of eternal adoption to sonship, 
which not one of us could ever have hoped for or laid claim to, but which sits atop the flood of graces that come to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And all of these prepared the way for this one capping grace, adoption to sonship. A quick disclaimer that I've made often in my classes. The terms that we use in the Bible, uh, son and sonship, have in many translations today been excluded. Other words have been replaced, replacing it. Biblically, however, that's a mistake because those words in our Bibles in the original language, have enormous and rich meaning in the Word of God and inevitably point to our incorporation into the eternal Son of God, Jesus. What He has always been, we now have become through faith in Him, adopted to the Father. Incredible. And let's be clear about these terms, Son and Sonship used of believers. They are void of all gender implications. It is as much an honor to boast about for me as a man as for any one of you, my sisters. After all, I rejoice in being called the bride of Christ. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul told the Corinthians, I have betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. That's us men as well as you sisters. Here again is feminine language used of all believers, male and female, with rich theological overtones eschewing any gender implications. We have been taught by Paul in Galatians 3, 26 and 28 that there is neither male nor female for you are all sons through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, this does not mean that there are not really Christian men and Christian women. We know that's true. It means that as far as salvation goes, it does not matter for what matters is that we are all sons in a deeply biblical sense. Let's capture the intentions of the words of Scripture before we neutralize them in an effort to please our culture, which, by the way, is lost and twisted and without understanding and should not be determining or dictating to us how to handle the words of life. Before unpacking a bit of this wonderful doctrine, Let's just assure ourselves that it is, in fact, true. It is, in fact, biblical. Paul has said, You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.26 Then he goes on, assuming that truth, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4.6 And if you wonder... At what point did the Father, in his plan, decide to adopt us as sons? Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Adoption as sons was not God's plan B. Plan A was never a sinless humanity from creation. 
Plan A apparently was creation, the fall, redemption, and adoption so that the full range of God's glory and mercy and grace could be known and experienced by his adopted sons. That is us. Now, much of this remains a mystery to us, one of those Deuteronomy 29.29 things that will be revealed to us in glory. The scriptures are clear on it. But why should he do this? Why should he predestine us to adoption as sons? Well, Paul goes on in Ephesians, and he says he did it according to the kind intention of his will. You know what that means? Because he wanted to. It's as simple as that. God wanted to adopt us. We may wonder why, but he wanted to. That's the kind will of his intention. And if you think that your adoption to sonship is not really so significant, do you realize that all of creation is in anticipation of its consummation? Romans 8, 9 says, For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. This is an honor so great that all of creation is on edge in expectation. Why? Because creation will finally be set free from the curse upon the consummation of our sonship. Hallelujah. Listen to the Apostle John's own astonishment in 1 John 3.1. Behold, consider this, he says, how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God and such we are. John was aware of all the aspects of salvation, yet he chose being made sons by adoption, the measure of God's love for us. It seems that he too saw adoption as the crowning grace that we receive from God. Enough to establish that it is biblical that we who have believed are sons of God. Let's now look at some bullet points regarding its nature. In my desire to capture much, I will only be able to say little on many points, each of which could be a sermon in itself. First, we should make a distinction, biblically, between adoption and sonship. As one is the cause and the other is the effect. Adoption describes the process, while sonship describes the resulting status. Both are of grace alone and Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Also, as I mentioned in class, ancient adoption differed greatly from adoption in modern day. Today, we adopt children to raise them in our family, to give them a home. In ancient times, adults of known good character were adopted for the express purpose of becoming the family's heirs. Why? Well, often children of emperors were spoiled and irresponsible, and so the emperor looked outside of his own family for one to adopt. Perhaps the most famous of that day would have been Julius Caesar, adopting his grandnephew, Gaius Octavius, who has more famously become remembered as Augustus, Caesar Augustus, who, by the way, by adoption, was on the throne when Jesus was born. How about that for God's 
sovereignty over the entire world. Now, this background about ancient adoption highlights at least one of the wonders of our adoption. You and I were most certainly not people of known good character. We've already summarized what the scripture has to say about our former lives. So why did God adopt us? Well, because his intention is to conform us to the image of his very son and make us heirs of all. Romans 8:29. A second point, as the scriptures we've already looked at suggest, adoption to sonship to the Father is a new covenant grace that can only be received through and in Christ. Old Testament ideas of sonship are rare, but when they appear, they are corporate and not a means of entering the eternal redeemed family of God. Indeed, Paul tells us in Romans 9.4 that it was the Israelites to whom belonged the adoption as sons. But this was a corporate, not individual matter in which at times Israel as a whole nation, as a whole people, is said to be God's son. Exodus 4.22 is one location. What this did is set Israel apart from other nations as belonging to God. And it, but it lacked the substance and the security of full adoption in Christ. This was not new covenant sonship, but only, as the writer of Hebrews indicates, its shadow, its anticipation of fulfillment that could only be in Christ. For Paul, a former Israelite in the Old Testament sense, Having become a son of Abraham in the New Testament sense through adoption, this doctrine was the wow of the gospel to him. To be personally, not corporately, but personally, a son of God. Third, a third aspect of this sonship is the need that it meets. Every aspect of Christ's cross meets some need in us. Let's consider some. Election set us apart specifically to God, and we received for that a new destiny into eternity. Justification answered our rightful condemnation. In justification, we received new clothes of righteousness. Regeneration overcame our spiritual death. In regeneration, we received new life. Not yet a family, but new spiritual life. Calling ended our spiritual deafness. In calling, we received an open ear to the voice of our shepherd. Sanctification resolves our contamination. In sanctification, we receive a new lifestyle. Conversion ends our waywardness. In conversion, we receive the gifts of faith and repentance. And all of this flows from our union with Christ, which answers our separation from God. So what about adoption? What does adoption bring to us that we needed? In adoption, we receive a new father. Perfect filial love and 
a new family. Galatians 4, 7 tells us that because we have been made sons through the indwelling spirit of his son, therefore you are no longer a slave as a son of Satan, but a son and therefore an heir through God. If I were asked what was the opposite of son, I'd be hard-pressed to come up with anything but the word slave. And spiritually, it was worse, for we were slaves of sin, of Satan, of the flesh, of the law, and of the powers and principalities and the principles of the world. None of those were kind slave masters. Adoption to eternal sonship answers every one of those enslaved conditions with the highest honor possible to grant. We have gone from serving the forces of evil to inheritors of all the divine goodness in ways yet unimaginable, but gloriously being experienced even in this life. From sons of fallen Adam to sons of the glorious God, that is how we have traveled. A fourth aspect of sonship are some of the distinguishing traits, and I will mention four of them if you're into bullet points. First, let me say that like justification, adoption to sonship has a legal dimension, as it did in ancient times. Whereas justification is the stuff of the heavenly courtroom, adoption has to do with the heavenly family room. One has to do with being acquitted and declared right. The other is entirely relational, going beyond being made acceptable to being brought into the divine intimacy with the Father in his family. But being a legal status as it is, there must be some proof, some legal witness to it, some attestation to the transaction. And the legal witness is a seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit. So in Ephesians 1.13, we read, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And how long will that promise last? How long will that seal last? Well, Paul goes on at the end of the book in Ephesians 4.30 and says, We have been sealed for the day of redemption meaning the consummation of all of God's work in Christ Jesus and the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth. This is a binding legal contract made by one party, the triune God, and cannot and will not be broken and can never fail. Amen. Brothers and sisters, everything about this doctrine of adoption to sons of God shouts out the assurance of salvation. For God is a perfect father who will never and can never forsake any one of his sons for all eternity. In fact, Jesus is the perfect brother. Hebrews 2.10 tells us that Jesus suffered to bring many sons to glory, and he did not suffer in vain. He has made that promise, and he will do it. A second distinguishing trait of sonship is that we are led by the spirit of adoption within us. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God, said Paul in Romans 8.14. Now, sadly, we often limit this 
truth to daily issues of direction. But Paul likely had much more on, in his mind. He had in mind the entirety of our lives as God's sons being determined, directed, and dominated at all times by the Spirit for our good and God's glory, Romans 8, 28. So going beyond making a particular decision, this assures us that as sons, we are constantly, sovereignly, and providentially under God's guidance. Hallelujah, I'm so glad. Moving to North Carolina, there's a wall of unknowns ahead of us, but there's also God. He has gone before us and is going before us. And I rest in that, that fact. I am determined, directed, and dominated by the Spirit of God who indwells me. I am being led by Him, and so are you. This is not so much a hope, nor even an effort on our part, but a guarantee that all true sons of God are in His control at all times. A third distinguishing trait is that while we have established that we had absolutely no right to be granted entrance into God's eternal family as heirs, adoption to sonship is in fact to us a right. Really? Yes. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, i.e. believed in him, to them he gave the right, the authority to become sons children of God. Now, there are numerous passages in the Scriptures that deny what our culture commonly calls the fatherhood, universal fatherhood of God. But this one is unmistakable. It is not a right by nature, but a right of adoption belonging only to those who are in Christ Jesus by faith. To us now belong all the rights and privileges of full sonship to the eternal God from whom we are receiving and will receive the storehouse of grace, grace upon grace. This is now unbelievably our right, says John, and only because we have believed in his name, and even that was gifted to us. This right comes with the full authority of sonship to the Father. We have the right to call God our Father, to address him as Abba, Father, our dear Father. Scholarship and research have have discovered that this is not a baby talk like Dada. This is a phrase that was used by Jewish men, not of their heavenly Father, but of their earthly fathers. The wonder of this privilege is that it is expressive of an especially close relationship to our God. Here we are put on the same footing as our Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of God, for this was His way of addressing the Father. For instance, in Mark 14, 36, while Jesus is in Gethsemane, He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. To be sure, Jesus' sonship is unique, higher, and eternal, designating His position in the Trinity. Yet his sonship is the source of ours so that Jesus could say to the disciples when he was leaving them, I am ascending to my father and to your father. There's a distinction there, John 20, 17. 
So not only are we in Christ given the right to call God our dear Father, but we have the privilege of addressing him in the most intimate of terms, characteristic of the most intimate of relationships that now is ours. And we have the authority to stand also against all evil in his name. As sons, we have the infinite authority of the creator and sustainer of creation at our disposal by the Spirit. His word is our certain authority in every situation. We also have the privilege to pray to him because we have his ear. Our heavenly Father does not bring us into the family as paupers, but as royal sons, co-heirs with Jesus. The man who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton, once said that too often as sons, we live so far below our privileges and are often so heavy and sorrowful when in fact we have in Christ grounds for continual joy. Amen. Read 2 Corinthians 6.10 and Philippians 4.4. The Puritan Richard Sibbs, Sibbs has said, all things are ours by virtue of adoption. Because we are Christ and Christ is God's. There is a world of riches, he says, in this, to be the sons of God. A fourth distinguishing trait of sonship should be appreciated is that God has not left us without sources of certainty about our sonship. Now think about a normal healthy family, earthly family. A child is given many assurances of being securely within that family. Only a sick family fails to do that. Well, our God does no less. The Holy Spirit himself, the spirit of adoption in Romans 8, 15, and 16, testifies, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We see that the Holy Spirit has at least two roles in our adoption. He brings it about, but he also makes us daily aware that we have been adopted and we are God's sons. This is the Spirit giving us indications in our inner soul, our inner person, assuring us that we are God's sons. Part of how he does this is by bringing the word of promise to our remembrance and then encouraging us to reckon it as true. If you know you are a Christian, you know that you are one who reckons day in and day out the truth of God's word. It is what we do. Our own perceptions are fallible, but the Spirit makes no mistakes, and He Himself is the truth. He persuades us that what we are seeing in His Word about adoption and what we are living in our lives about adoption are, in fact, true of us. It is the Spirit alone who knows the things of God and discerns between the real and the counterfeit. In fact, in 1 John 5, 6, regarding the person of Jesus, we read, it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Well, this same Spirit who testified to the fact of Jesus also testifies daily to the fact of our adoption to sonship of the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. A fifth point about adoption. 
If we should inquire about the ultimate cause of adoption, that cause is Trinitarian. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all involved in this glorious cap of grace, adoption. This should not surprise us. Though we have been trained to associate certain aspects of our salvation with one or another of the members of the Godhead specifically, they are, as Lance Gentry said not too many weeks ago, so much one that not one member acts apart from the other two. To be sure, there is mystery in the Trinity, and if anybody tries to conclusively explain it to you, walk away from them. But the Father has given us much to know and to glory in, the hidden things he keeps until later. We see this to be the case in the precious doctrine of the highest grace, adoption. We have already witnessed the Apostle John's astonishment in 1 John 3.1. Behold, take it in, how great the love of the Father that we should be called children of God. And we've looked at Ephesians 1.5 where the Father predestined us to adoption as sons. And according to Romans 8.29, he has predestined us to sons for the intention of becoming conformed to the image of his one eternal son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What is the son's role? Well, we just read that God predestined us to become like his son, but how is that made possible? Only in one way. Jesus himself becoming the firstborn or first fruits through the resurrection, Romans 8.29. And what did this require? Our ultimate adoption by the Father required that the eternal Son become a man, never ceasing to be quite God, in order to die for our sins, rise from the dead to newness of life, setting in motion the very path that every believer will take. We were dead in sins and trespasses, alien and hostile to God, Ephesians 2.1 and Colossians 1.21. Yet by faith we were in Christ in his death to sin and also in Christ in his powerful defeat of sin by the resurrection. We have been raised up, Paul says in Romans 6, as new creations in Christ to newness in life in Jesus, our elder brother. For Jesus to be the firstborn among many brethren, that means that we are his brothers and therefore we are God's sons. One caveat, however, keep in mind that Jesus' sonship is eternal and not adoptive. Ours is of grace and of mercy. It is gifted to us. And to this we can add John 1.12, but as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Jesus imparts this right to us, this authority to us. And finally, it cost Jesus something. Hebrews 2, 10 to 11 shows another side of Jesus' part in sonship. Verse 10 tells us how fitting it was for Jesus to suffer in order to bring many sons to glory. Having accomplished this on behalf of all true believers, we read there that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and therefore sons of God. The Holy Spirit the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, also participates in adoption to sonship. There is first the new birth, which he brings to pass by his own indwelling. In him, we are given new life 
born again, born from above. And by him, we are then adopted into the family of God. In Romans 8.15, contrasting the Spirit's effect upon us with the former slavery under Satan, Paul says that adoption was that we have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by, as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So we see that adoption, this wonderful capstone of God's grace to us, is, a, is an ultimate outcome of the, the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, if I should default to the traditional, unique functions of each member of the Godhood, I would go to Ephesians chapter 1 and say that adoption was ordained by the Father, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, accomplished by the Son, Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, and applied by the Spirit, Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Paul includes all three members of the Godhead in one passage as responsible for our adoption. Now, that's the ultimate cause of our adoption to sonship. What is the proximate or secondary cause of it? Well, the Scriptures tell us. In Galatians 3.26, it says, For you are all, that is, you believers, sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, God provides. God determines. God enables. God makes possible. And yet, by a gift of his grace, he gives us the faith to believe and receive all that he provides for us. A sixth aspect of our spiritual sonship has to do with resting in our adoption in the care of our Father. Our divine Father is the perfect Father, the definition of what fatherhood is and should be. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 11, in one of his many lesser to greater arguments, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And as sons, we're not to worry about the things of this life. Matthew 6, 25 and following talks about the birds and the lilies. They're examples of God's providential care. And again, another lesser to greater argument, they end with, Will he not much more care for you? And of course, the assumed answer is yes. Besides, as sons of the Father, we should realize that such anxiety over earthly things is unhelpful and unproductive. After all, will such worry add even an inch or an hour to our lives? Verse 27 asks. Rather, 1 Peter 5.7 tells us we are those who should be casting all our cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. Now, while the consummation of real riches awaits the end of God's program, sons are not to worry excessively about earthly material things, for the Father knows what we need, and he is capable and willing of providing them. But the operative word there is need, determined by something much higher than our desires and our wants. For God's intention in bringing many sons to glory shapes what each son actually needs at any given time, and he meets that need always. 
Think of your life as a blank canvas and of God as the master painter. He is adding just the strokes and the colors and the flourishes that will result in what is most needed in each one of us. That is full conformity to the image of Christ according to the unique individuality that God has already given to us. We are not cookie cutters. We're each individuals, but we are all in that individuality being conformed to Christ. And that is our need, and God meets that need. In ways, sometimes, we'd rather he not. Seventh, another aspect of our adoption to divine sonship has to do with what was alluded to earlier. Not only do we have God as a father, but we have gained a new family, brothers and sisters, as very real and eternal family, more real and more wonderful than our earthly families. And while this too will have its consummation, it begins now. In the world, families and communities are exceedingly flawed. Things like favoritism, prejudice, status, jealousies, rivalries, exclusive individuality, and much, much more characterize families and all communities. But the eternal family into which we have been adopted or placed by God is to be free of such unhealthy displays of attitudes and behaviors. We know that this will be the case in eternity, but we are to be living today in such a way as to mirror God's ultimate intention for us now. We are to be a loving, forgiving, encouraging family to one another. It is said in a few places in the book of Revelation, uh, one being Revelation 7-9, that the Eternal adopted family of God will consist of people from every tongue and nation and people and tribe. That's diversity. At that time, our diversities and created varieties will be nothing but a blessing before the throne of Christ, even though now they're often in irritation. Yet now is the time for us as adopted sons in the family of God to put on the mind of Christ, our elder brother, to put off those petty and divisive attitudes that tend towards self-promotion and to put on the mind of Christ. So as Paul says in Philippians 2-3, regarding one another as more important than ourselves. What we are as sons of God and what we have to look forward to as an eternal family experience that in this life is really unfathomable. But, If you think of the absolutely best aspects of family life you have ever had, catch one in your mind right now, and now multiply it infinitely to anticipate what is to come. Let's get a jump on it now. Well, I'm running out of time. That's not new to me. I often do. There really is much more that this unimaginable gift of adoption could be described from scriptures. We could talk about how the father perfectly disciplines his sons out of infinite love. How sonship and its attendant discipline are a source of assurance of our salvation. We could talk about how sons are adopted unto fruitfulness to the glory of our father, both in this life and into eternity. And we could talk about how in line with our elder brother's pathway, Sonship means suffering now and glory later. But I will close with one final point. The certain destiny of adopted sons. 
We have previously mentioned the idea of heirship associated with our adoption to sonship. It is, in fact, the very purpose of the Father's heart to give us all of himself and all that is his in glory. Our final destiny is to enter into the full enjoyment of that inheritance, which Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved, it's there, kept in heaven for you, who also are being protected by the power of God through faith, ready to be revealed. (coughs) Inheritance as a type of what would come through Christ was a central motif in the Old Testament. But you and I have its promise fulfilled in Christ and will one day experience its fullness. The triune God is going to tabernacle with us in the fullness and splendor of his glory. That is our inheritance. That is our destiny. Let me close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. He describes God building a house for himself and that the sons are actually that house. He says, imagine yourself a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house At first, perhaps, you understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You you knew that those jobs needed to be done, and you're not surprised. (coughs) But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make sense. (coughs) Excuse me. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. (coughs) Folks, this apex of God's grace, adoption to sonship, was purposed before time, Ephesians 5.1 prefigured in corporate Israel, Romans 9, and is secured by the incarnate Son of God who came, died, suffered, and rose again for our full and final sonship. Oh, the wonder of being adopted by the Father in heaven to become the fairy family room in which he will dwell forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, having chosen, justified, reconciled, redeemed, and united us to Christ, all who have been granted faith to believe, all this you achieved in order to fit us to be sons in your eternal family. We stand in awe and overflow with thanksgiving, Lord. And if there are any here today who are unsure about this status, May you draw them to yourself through your Son by the Spirit. And to the rest of us, may we go out of here into life rejoicing forever and ever. Amen.